Jasmine, the other day I was scrolling through my Instagram explore page, you know, as you do, and I came across a very interesting video. It was a compilation of various members of the Korean band BTS laughing. Now you might be asking yourself, why on earth would Ali sit through a two minute video just watching people do absolutely nothing but laugh? And the answer to that is that it's actually scandalously entertaining. But what interested me most was actually the caption, which read, Did you ever think about the fact that we all laugh in the same language? You know, these Korean men might not speak the same language as us, and they might look different to us and have different cultures, etc. But at the end of the day, laughing is something that spans across all languages. And I think that's a really interesting thing to think about that I've never really considered before. How is it that these grunts and sounds that our ancestors used to communicate feeling with all eventually evolved into being many different languages across the world. And yet the sounds people used when they wanted to express laughter, though they're not always the same sounds from person to person, somehow even to this day are globally recognised as the sounds which mean that something is funny or entertaining. I think that's a really interesting point to consider, although I actually think that even when people laugh, you laugh in different languages in the sense that when I sneeze, if I'm sneezing in English, if that if I'm thinking in English and I sneeze, I'll go a chu. Whereas if I'm thinking in Japanese and I sneeze, I go hakshang. So I think just language itself is really interesting. And what a coincidence that this really interesting topic happens to be the focus for this week's episode. When we refer to language, we're not just going to dwell on French or Spanish or how epically and swaggily and deliciously Yasmin speaks Japanese. But we're also going to delve into to what extent language is interconnected to emotion and thought. So to start, Yasmin, I thought I'd ask you this fascinating question. Does language influence thought or does thought influence language? I think it's a really interesting question to consider, you know, it gives off the same energy as which came first, the chicken or the egg, and I think there are arguments to be made on both cases. I mean, for the argument that language influences thought, I think there's a pretty strong case where you could argue that, can you really think things without a language? Like, all the thoughts in your head, I'm assuming for most people, take the form of a language. Like, and this isn't, I'm not including feelings in here, because obviously, Everyone can feel things with or without a language. But if you want to, say, communicate these feelings or become more introspective and understand these feelings and put words to these feelings, you need a language. And you also need a language for more pedantic things. Like if, you, if you're thinking in your head, do I want the blue car or the red car? You're thinking that with a language. So I guess there's the argument to be made that you, thoughts don't really exist without a language. But then obviously you have counterexamples where A, you can express thoughts in different ways, I guess, like in terms of art, you know, you can express what you're thinking in your head in a way that doesn't really require a language, or maybe art is the language itself. But I think when it comes to adding more new words to the English lexicon today, thoughts definitely influence language. For example, instead of wordly saying, oh, I'm looking something up, People today decided to take that thought and put it more concisely in the verb to Google. So I think maybe before the language could have been influencing thought, but today we want to sum up and make our thoughts more concise. And to do that, we're inventing new words that can summarize these 
more complex feelings and emotions. So I guess the really unhelpful answer to the question is, I think it's a mixture of both. Yeah, I think you made some really good points, Yasmin. I particularly liked your point about art. I thought that was really good to point out. And I'd be interested in addressing more the question, is it possible to think without speaking a language? And I'm just brainstorming here, but I think the answer could be yes in some cases. It is possible to think without speaking a language. For instance, if you're hungry, that's a feeling. But then the next logical thought from there is, I must find food. And I feel as though for that sort of thought, you don't need a language to express it. The thought to go and find food will occur to you whether or not you speak a language. You just wouldn't be able to express it without a language. And equally, you can still have the thought I should wash myself without necessarily speaking a language. And therefore, I'd argue that originally it was thought which influences language and not the other way around, because language developed merely as a way of expressing your thoughts. That because you think it was necessary for you to have some way to put your thoughts into words and communicate them to others, but that the thoughts originally came first, rather than you speak a language and therefore that enables you to think. I don't know if that's a thinking thing or a more instincts that you've had because in order to survive you need to eat so I think all animals have evolved to want to you know eat food so I still think it's more of a feeling and intuition rather than an actual thought process and speaking of feelings we were discussing earlier about whether we thought that people could feel the same intensity of emotions if they had no words to express them with what do you think groups? I'm not sure if I would say that you'd still feel the same intensity of emotions if you don't speak any language. Because I think that sometimes, by using language to understand and define your emotions, it can actually make them more strongly felt than if the feeling was just lurking transparently in the back of your mind. For instance, if you feel a little inkling of sadness but don't know the word sad, then you'd still be able to feel sadness. But because you don't know what it is, the feeling of sadness might remain ghostly and sort of floating in the back of your head as a kind of mist. But as soon as you find out that the word for the feeling is sadness, that could potentially make that vague feeling much more solid and concentrated. Equally, sometimes I feel stressed out. But as soon as I actually label the feeling I have as stress, that can make me a lot more stressed out. Like, by admitting to myself that I'm stressed, that seed of a feeling suddenly becomes concrete. It's almost like labelling feelings with words makes you accept the fact that you're feeling that way, and then the feeling becomes more real and almost more permanent. So by language being able to label and help you understand your emotions, I think it can actually make those emotions that would otherwise be vague much stronger. I actually think that in terms of thoughts, I think a lot is lost if you don't have the proper vocabulary to be able to clearly express them. But when it comes to feelings, I actually think it's the opposite. I think a lot of the time we use words to try and box and define these really complex feelings that we have. Like if you ask someone, define love or define happiness, they will have so many different opinions because the words just don't do your feelings justice, which is why you get really niche words that describe a tiny bit of a very, very specific feeling because in general your feelings are so huge that a simple word or a series of words just can't define them. So I definitely think that your feelings are actually probably more intense when you don't try and box them up and define them in such a specific way. Yes you won't be able to describe them to other people but I think that's the beauty of it right your feelings are just beyond words. 
Gaussman, in our intro, I talked about how laughing is a universal language because no matter where you are in the world, if you laugh, everyone will understand that you're laughing. And it got me thinking about this idea of having a universal language and whether that could be a good thing or not. So what do you think? Should there be one universal language on Earth? So I definitely think having a universal language can be very useful in specific scenarios, especially in things like science, because all the elements are the same or representative of the same symbols throughout the entire world. It's very easy to share research and generally make sure that everyone's on the same page. Yeah, I definitely agree with you that in some cases, having a universal language can be a really positive thing. For example... If we think about when we go on holiday to a foreign country and see very attractive, exotic people, I sometimes think, what a shame that if I did want to get to know them better, it'd be really difficult since there might be a pretty strong language barrier between us. So I think that brings me to a more light-hearted point about why we should have a universal language. Simply, if most of the world does not speak the same language as you, there are less fish in the sea and therefore less choice of not just romantic interests, but also friends. Think about how many potential best friends there would be in the world if you spoke the same language as everyone else. But I think an important point to raise is how many couples there are who do not share the same mother tongues, but who do communicate extraordinarily well. It makes you question how important language is in making friendships and getting to know people, because it seems that Though you'd think a couple who aren't both fluent in the same language would not be able to communicate as thoroughly. Actually, maybe when it comes to making strong connections between people, even language cannot be a barrier. And it is things like people's values and key morals and interests which really matter. That's quite a heartwarming thought to think about. And then there is the obvious argument that it's not logistical or realistic to have a universal language, because how would you even be able to implement it? I actually don't think there should be a universal language, though, because even if we could theoretically implement one successfully, it'll just lead to even more languages dying and more culture being lost. Because even to this day, one language is said to be going extinct every three months. And by the end of the century, we're said to have less than half the languages we have today. And I think it's really important that we make a conscious effort to save endangered languages because language is a huge part of culture so when a language dies a lot of that culture dies as well and not just culture but history written systems only exist for one third of the world's languages so a lot of stories and tales in these smaller communities where there are only say a couple hundred people who speak the language all of their tales of their ancestors and all the interesting history and the culture there are only told orally through like spoken words so it's really important that we continue to have these diverse range of languages because by the time the language is dead or extinct we would have no gauge on how much knowledge we've missed out on how much we could have learnt from these stories and these tales and the history and the culture yes i agree with everything you said and on the note of languages dying every day you mentioned it in the context of small tribes and communities But I don't think dying languages just applies to languages of tribes and smaller communities, but actually a lot of languages. I think as more and more people are moving to America or England or the Western world, the children of these parents who are moving are, though they may understand their mother tongue, often not 100% uh, fluent in the language of their tradition. 
And this I find really sad that more and more people of the newer generations are speaking English and not the language of their ancestors. For my German exchange, for example, I went to Munich and I think this is a particular problem in Germany where everyone speaks English so well. It's almost pointless to learn German. I love learning German, which is why I chose to continue studying it. But it did occur to me when I was there that in 300 years or something, I wouldn't be surprised if the language went extinct. Because if everyone there speaks English and not very many English people are learning to speak German, I don't see how it will be able to survive. So to end this segment on universal languages and the risks that come with gradually reducing the numbers of languages spoken in the world, I would like to urge our listeners, please, if you have the gift, the great gift that I'm very jealous of, of having parents who speak a different language as their mother tongue, make the most of that gift. Don't squander it by speaking to your parents in English, because you will be contributing to the loss of that tradition and culture, which is becoming more and more of an issue. Moving on from this idea of dying languages, I think it's only natural that we move on to talking about dead languages, which a lot of my classmates claim to be a waste of time. So I was curious, Yasmin, to know what you think. Should we be learning dead languages? So I'm probably a slightly biased person to ask this question to, given that I did two dead languages for GCSEs and I'm going to continue to do Latin for A-level. But I think learning dead languages is really not just useful, but really interesting and enriching because not only do you understand your modern world more because these languages provided the basis of the languages we know today, especially if you're an English speaker or any European language speaker, you know, Latin and Greek formed a lot of basis for all of those words. You also get to understand the history and the culture so much more deeply because you get to read these sources firsthand rather than relying on someone else's translation because so much is not only lost in translation, but all the nuances, but because no two people translate the same, even the subtle differences in translation could leave you with completely different impressions. Say, if I'd read an English translation of this, I might think, oh, this passage is talking about sorrow and regret. But if I read the source material, I could be like, oh, it's actually talking about optimism in the future. There's just so much more you can understand if you know a language. And this doesn't actually even apply just to dead languages, but for learning languages in general, it just gives you so much more of a better understanding into these cultures. Yeah, I do agree with you, Yasmin. But just to play devil's advocate, I can also see where people are coming from when they say that there are other subjects that could be more useful than learning Greek or Latin, for example. You know, right now, during a global pandemic, I could understand why some people think it's not the best use of time to be learning ancient languages when we're so much in the need of doctors and scientists and people who specialise in developing phone tracing apps. Some people argue we should focus more on studying maths and science as opposed to the dative and accusative case, and I must say I do see that argument. On the other hand, however, as well as what you said about the ancient languages being useful, learning Latin and Greek and all about amphitheatre life is really fun. So in that regard, it is worthwhile because learning should be about enjoying yourself and broadening your knowledge in all different sides of your brain, not just the maths and science aspects. So I can see the two sides of the argument. So Yasmin, we've talked a lot about pure language, but what about discussing things like how people say things and body language? 
In other words, do you think body language is important? Personally, I think body language is really important, and I've thought that particularly ever since I went to an acting class about status. And the first exercise that we did was very simple. We were told to just walk around the room, and then the teacher called stop. And what was really interesting about the exercise was that instinctively, without anyone noticing it, a bigger gap had been left around this boy who was very confident and had attended the class for years and years, and therefore had a higher status in the class. And no one did it intentionally, but we subconsciously gave him more room because some part of us recognised the fact that he had a higher status, which spoke to me about how important body language can be in indicating social dynamics without us even realising it. And the second exercise was also really interesting. The acting teacher and one pupil walked straight at each other from opposite ends of the room. And instinctively, without being aware of it, the pupil walked around the teacher to get past him, while the teacher didn't move, a, move his direction at all. He just continued walking straight ahead. In this case, once again, it was really apparent how we don't even notice how important body language is. And yet things like status affect our own body language and we don't even know it. You know, eye contact is another thing. It is usually the person with the lowest status who will look away first after catching someone's, someone older's eye. I've been thinking about how body language is ingrained in us to show even really subtly social dynamics. And since then, I've decided that I shall never be the one to look away first. So I've spent many tube journeys looking at people until they look away to win the status battle. But I'm interested, Yasmin, do you think tone and body language are important? Oh, I definitely think that tone and body language is everything, you know? You can find out if someone is really being genuine and they mean what they say and gauge the true meaning behind their words. And another area where I think tone is really important, or at least important to me, is especially when it comes to things like humour and sarcasm. Because on text, the whole problem with sarcasm is the other person can't gauge your tone. So if you meant to be really sarcastic, like, no, you're a terrible baker in trying to make fun of their self-consciousness. If you just typed, no, you're a terrible baker in text, they could genuinely think you were insulting them and come across as very rude. And I know for a fact that when I was in primary school and I was the only person being sarcastic, a lot of people got offended because I don't think my tone was as brilliant as it is today so they lost the message and just thought I was being really horrible to them. Yeah and going off what you said about tone I'd like to give some demonstrations that show just how important tone is in conveying meaning. For instance if I were to say I really like your skirt it's so nice I really like your skirt versus I really like your skirt it's so nice where did you get it? Now I'm hoping that from the first example it was pretty obvious that I was being genuine and I actually really did like your skirt. But in the second example, it was pretty clear that I was being fake and in reality didn't like your skirt at all. Another example. Okay, tone one. Oh, go away, you're so annoying. And tone two. You're so annoying. Go away. There again, we can see that while the words were exactly the same, the meanings were totally different, as would probably be the effect on the people I was saying that to. In the first, they probably wouldn't be offended and take it as a joke. But the second one was, well, I tried to make it much meaner. And so that just speaks to how much of an impact tone can have. 
basically it was an excuse for me to practice my little tone exercise. I mean it's really interesting to think of something like a language of grunts and how much you'd be able to convey just with things like tone and body language. And I actually think that although specific thoughts might be lost, like could you pick up that pen or I want coffee soon, you can get across your feelings quite adequately even without words. So I definitely think that body language is just as important, if not maybe more, than the words you actually use. To end this episode, we thought it'd be nice if we chose our favourite words from other languages. And my word is sort of cheating because it's not a word that I chose. But my mother sent me a podcast episode featuring this very successful Korean writer who grew up largely in America called Min Jin Lee who said that her favourite word is a Korean word, which doesn't exist in English, called nunchi. And she said it's a sense about things, a kind of sensitivity, but not just social intelligence, but a sense of how to survive that usually people from minority groups have a lot of. And according to her, it's something that everyone should have. And I think sharing words from different languages is a really uniting thing to do because you get insight into new meanings you've never discovered before. Because I'm not Korean, I don't think I fully have a sense for what this word nunchi means yet, but I'm gonna think about it a lot so I can develop a better idea of what it is and how I can develop the skill in myself more. And I know that a lot of our listeners speak other languages, so I would urge you listeners after listening to this episode to message Yasmin and I uh, your favorite word in your language so that we can share our words together. So my word I want to end the podcast with is the word tokimeku, and some of you might have heard of it because it's gotten quite popular because it's what Marie Kondo uses and it's the thing that has been translated as sparks joy and it's a really hard word to translate and I think sparks joy is actually quite a good take on it but in general it just means being able to find the wonder and beauty and joy in something and I really I think it's a really beautiful word that doesn't really have a translation in English, which makes it all the more special that I know of it. Ah, that is very interesting. And actually, Yasmin, since this is an episode about language, and you could probably guess what I'm about to say, would you mind saying thank you to all of our listeners and one surprising comment before we end our episode in Japanese? That would be much appreciated. まあ、今週も皆さん聞いてくれてありがとうございます。来週も雑談入れながら面白い話をしたいと思うので、ぜひ聞いてください。チャンネル登録とかはないけど、高評価とかTwitter、Instagramのフォローをお願いします。ありが